service is going to look just a little different today. Uh, we're going to start in Genesis, and then we're going to jump forward to John. And uh, I want some time in between for us to reflect on what we're going to read from Genesis today. I want to remind you, when we open the book of Genesis, when we start in the first chapter, what we see is that God creates good. Every time that we read that God brings something new into creation, he affirms it as good. He says that the skies and the stars in the sky are good. He says that the plants are good, that the animals are good, that man and woman are very good. We read in the second chapter that God creates a garden. It it walks us through all of creation again, and it draws together these rivers to a central central point, uh, a beautiful garden that is designed as the perfect place for God and man to interact with one another. God walks Adam through the garden and shows him the trees. He, He shows him the animals. They have this little naming moment where all the animals are named. And, and the one time that God says it's, it's not good is when Adam is alone. And so God, God improves it, and he brings Adam, his counter, his, his, his mate, his partner, the person who will help him in all things, the, the one that allows him to do the things he could not do on his own. And for a period of time, we don't know how long because Scripture is really unclear on it, they live in harmony there. God and man together. And it's a beautiful, wonderful image that we're given. But it's lost in the third chapter. You see, there's, there's a tree in the middle of the garden, two of them actually, one bearing the fruit of life and the other bearing the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil or, or good and bad. God says, don't eat. don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and bad. All the other trees of the garden you can eat from, just not this one. Notice he doesn't restrict them from the tree of life. They can eat from that all that they want. God God wants them to have life. He doesn't keep it from them. He doesn't hide it from them. He doesn't say, by the way, these two trees in the middle of the garden, I want you to abstain from. It's just the one tree. And he makes it very clear. The day you eat from that tree, you will ensure your death. We translate it as you will surely die. And the man and the woman, they know this. They've heard God's voice. They understand what it is that he's laid in front of them. But a deceiver comes along, a serpent, a crafty, clever creature that knows the words of God well enough to twist them. He says, did God really say you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden? And Eve's excited. No, I know the answer to this one. No, no, we may eat from all the trees. It's just this one we may not eat from. We shouldn't even touch it. But the deceiver plays it up a little bit. You know, the reason he doesn't want you to touch it is because he's afraid that you'll become like him, knowing good and evil knowing the good and the bad, experiencing them both, being intimately knowledgeable 
about these things. And she takes from the tree, and she eats. She gives to her husband, and he eats. And we don't know if it's the very next moment or if it's several hours later. We don't know how much time passes, but eventually God has come for a walk in the garden in the cool of the day, seeking out the man and the woman, and he calls out to them. His voice in the garden, his footsteps, they can hear him walking. But they've hidden themselves out of fear. They are terrified because their eyes are open. They know the possibilities of good and bad. And in that moment, God, who has uncovered what has happened... He tells them, look, this is your lot in life now. This is what you have sown for yourself, and it is what you will reap. And he lays out what we call the curse, but I want you to listen to the words that he uses here. He first turns his attention toward the deceiver. He says, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly, You shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And then God turns to the woman and he he says, I will multiply your pain in conception and birth. That's how you'll bring forth children. Your desire, it will be for your husband. But he'll rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Curses the ground. The God that planted a garden for man and woman Curses the ground. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And God, having told them the consequences of their actions, what they have sown and what they will reap, makes for them clothing, and sends them out of the garden. And he turns to those that are with him and says, lest the man should eat from the tree of life. And he places two angels, cherubim, fearsome, terrifying creatures at the entrance to the garden so that they can't return to it. And access to the tree of life is lost. And access to the garden that God had created for man is lost. And the close, intimate relationship that God had intended for man and God is lost. So much is lost in that moment. And the rest of Scripture is spent telling us what we anticipate and hope for, the ways in which we hope to see all of that undone. 
for thousands of years, we found ourselves struggling to understand how that would come to be. And I think this morning, if we can put ourselves in the shoes of the disciples on Saturday evening, on Saturday morning, the time between the crucifixion and the resurrection, we feel every single ache that Adam and Eve experienced as they leave the garden. A sense of hopelessness, a sense of loss, a sense of longing for something that is so innately a part of who we are and we can't find. And this morning as we worship, as we anticipate discussing the resurrection, I want us to think about those themes of fear, of loss, of suffering, of death, of longing. And I want us to ask ourselves, what is God going to undo? Let's continue in our worship. I've always found that the accounts of the resurrection happening in the garden are such a a beautiful parallel to the first few chapters of Genesis. And as as I read and prepared for this particular lesson, the thing that I kept thinking about is this this moment after Peter has gone and looked into the tomb, right? Uh, there's, he steps into the tomb. So there's a disciple that arrives before Peter. Actually, I saw a meme that I thought was really funny. Uh, it was um, John's gospel or uh, how Jesus loved me and also I'm faster than Peter. I always thought that that was kind of a, I thought that was a for, funny little moment there in the gospel here. You have the disciple that arrives at the tomb. He stoops, he looks in. Jesus is not there, just the sheet lying on the head place. And then there's Peter who comes along and he steps into the tomb and he comes back out realizing Jesus is not there. And Mary tells the disciples he's not there. And Mary lingers, she stays in the garden. The other disciples, they go back and they're, they're trying to reason out what's happened in their minds. Scripture tells us that they still don't fully understand that Jesus had to rise in order for Scripture to be fulfilled. But Mary is, she's afraid. She's deeply sorrowful. The word that the, the Greek uses to describe her weeping, we, we translate it as weeping, but it's like a howl. It is a, a somber, deep feeling of woe, agony, of pain. If anyone knew bad, hurt, sorrow, suffering. I think John is trying to communicate that that Mary feels it on that morning. And she looks back in the tomb. And the funny thing is that in the tomb, there are now two angels, and she is completely unfazed. They ask her, what are you looking for? She says, I don't know where they've taken my Lord. They've hidden him from us. Completely unsurprised by these two angelic beings. Now, I want you to think back through all of Scripture. Every time that someone encounters an angel, the kind of response that they have, all right? Joshua encounters the angel of the Lord, and he can't help but fall on his face, terrified at what he's experiencing. Angels always have to, like, say, do not fear, right? Don't be afraid, 
because they are an overwhelming, terrifying experience for most people. Mary is completely unfazed by these two angels in white. Her entire mind is reeling because if it wasn't enough that her Lord had died the day of Friday evening, if it wasn't enough that he had been crucified, that he had been humiliated by the Romans, that his disciples had left him, now his body had been stolen. And Mary is overcome with grief, probably overcome with anger at the situation. She is so very hurt by what she's experiencing. And even the angels of heaven do not faze her. And here in the garden, standing at the entrance to the tomb, she now turns around. She sees a man standing there, and she thinks he's the gardener. A little ironic. She thinks that he's the gardener, and, and she begins to, to ask him, Do you know where they have put my Lord? And Jesus' response is not to say, hey, it's me. Open your eyes, Mary. He just calls her by her name. You know how good it feels when you show up somewhere and people know your name? There's a whole like theme song for a television show dedicated to that, right? Sometimes you want to go where everyone knows your name. For those of you that are younger than me, that means nothing. For those of you that are older than me, that means a lot. For those of you that are actually my age, it maybe means nothing as well, but I watch a lot of old TV. To have someone know your name, to see you, to speak to you in your grief, it means so much. Notice Jesus doesn't It's going to be okay, Mary. It's all right. Stop crying. Pull yourself together. I've got good news for you. He doesn't do any of that. He just calls her by her name. I've always found that to be such an intimate and beautiful picture. It reminds me of God calling out to the man and the woman in the garden. Now, I don't know what he called out to them. The author of Genesis doesn't record specific words that God calls out to them. Maybe he called them Adam. Maybe he called her Eve. We don't know what he called them, but we know he spoke to them. That he was on a mission to find them specifically. There's not a whole lot of other options about who he's looking for, right? He says, hey, human beings, come to me. There's only really two options there. He's being pretty specific, and he's looking for them specifically. And when he doesn't find them, they have to reveal themselves to him. But they hid themselves. They hid themselves away. And so the funny thing is that you have this this first story, really, of the interactions between God and man in the book of Genesis that ends with man hiding himself from God while God is looking for him. And the story in the Gospel of John is a story about a woman looking for God who has not hidden himself, 
who makes himself known as soon as she needs him to, who calls her by name. And she is so overcome with joy because when, when she knows that he knows her name, she knows immediately who he is. Rabbanai. John is really helpful and he says that means teacher. And now we have this moment where she is recognizing you are the source of my knowledge. Everything that I want to know, you can teach me. I don't need a tree and its fruit to open my eyes. In fact, you saying my name was enough for me to know what I need to know. You are the teacher. And there's this reconciliation moment that happens here. It is so beautiful. And then Jesus gives her instructions. I want you to listen to the words of Jesus. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. And before... Before it's even late in the day on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus has commissioned the first preacher of the gospel. Go tell them that I am risen. Go tell them what you have seen. Go tell them what you have heard. And you know who's not hesitant to do that? Mary. Who stands up, she goes, she tells them. The funny thing is that, of course, the guys don't believe her. Um, It's Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And and they're still confused. They're still, I don't know. Go read all of the Gospels, kind of harmonize them a little bit. And what you see is that Mary is the one who's like, no, I know what I saw. I know what I heard. I know what happened. And the men are like, ah, but do you? Do you, though? The beautiful thing about this story is that everything that we read in the curse is undone. Everything that we read there, God has triumphed over death. You notice after, after Peter has walked into the tomb, because Peter's got, he's got to get up close and like actually inspect the things that are there on the, on the tomb floor and make sure that Jesus is not there. Maybe he lifts the linen, we're not told. He's got to see it with his own eyes. The angels appear and nobody goes back into the tomb. I kind of feel like the reason that those two angels appear in the tomb is a reminder to us that while God had cut us off from the tree of life in the garden, he has now cut us off from the tomb, from death, from Hades, from Sheol, whatever you want to label it as. Those two angels are there so that Mary doesn't go back into the tomb. Hey, don't seek the living among the dead. You have no business here. Because Mary doesn't go back in the tomb. She doesn't step foot in there. In fact, when she sees the angels, she just asks them a question and turns back around when she receives the response. Mary knows death has been defeated because there are angels guarding the tomb. Lest man should go back into the tomb and God places the angels there. 
There are so many beautiful parallels between these two passages. And the thing that I want us to take away this morning is this. When you read about death having had its victory in the Old Testament, where the great deceiver has managed to trick mankind into eating the fruit of the tree of life and knowing good and evil, and God says, you know, someday I'm going to set that right by crushing your offspring's head, that happens in the garden. Jesus undoes the deception of the serpent. When God says to Mary, your, or to Eve rather, your pain in childbearing and conception will be great. Sometimes we think of that as like physical pain. I want to tell you this. The actual truth of it is, the, the word that's used there is emotional turmoil. Your desire to have children, your inability to conceive them, your, your difficulty in actually delivering them, that is going to be the greatest heartache of your life. In Christ, that's undone. When he says to Mary, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. The word rule there is a, a tyrannical term. It's the kind of rule that is described of the kings of the world. It's not a positive connotation. Whatever rule might have come before, or whatever hierarchy or authority that may have existed before that moment, it's not a pleasant term that God uses here. It's the same kind of ruling that uh, is described as the, the kings of this world having over their subjects. Your desire will be for him, and he will rule over you. Jesus undoes that. And to the man, he says, look, you're going you're gonna to work really hard and get very little out of the ground. Your stomach will find its satisfaction only in bread. Jesus undoes that too. And as we read these consequences of the fall, and then we hold them up against what we see in John's gospel, what we see is that throughout the whole thing, Jesus is trying to tell us, look, you're not going to be hungering for bread anymore. I'm going to give that to you. You're not going to be searching for eternal life. I'm going to give that to you. You're not going to find yourself at enmity with one another because I am going to give you unity with one another. We're not to that part yet, but we're going to get there. The kings of this world, the rulers of this world, the people with authority in this world lorded over one another. It's not going to be that way with you. The Gospel of John is all about God's undoing of the fall. And there is no clearer statement that God has had victory over the break within the world, over the fracture that we see, than the fact that he commissions a woman on a Sunday morning to go and preach to the men who are too afraid to come to the tomb themselves, who are too confused by what it is that they've encountered. And Mary faithfully goes and shares the good news. And eventually everyone comes around to it. Some of them have to put their hands where the nail scars have been. But I want us to understand this morning, the good news of the gospel is not just that we get to go to heaven. It is not just that I have been forgiven of my sins. It is that God has undone all the hurt, 
all the suffering. That our hope is not in this day, this world, doing the right thing all the time, but our hope is in a God who will always and forever do the right thing. Who has given us a hope for eternity, a reality that is so much more than this world could ever promise us. And while we look at the fruit that we see on the tree out there and we sometimes long for it, thinking, wouldn't it be great to know just a little bit of that? God constantly reminds us, I am your teacher. I know your name. I know what you need to know. Share this with others. This particular encounter in Scripture uh, has come to change my opinion on a song that I've been singing since I was a little kid. I'm going to ask Tim to bring up this song, and I'm going to lead a song this morning and try not to cry while I do it. When we think of uh, the garden scene, when I was a little kid, you know, you sing about like the dew on the roses and stuff, and I'm like, well, this is an old lady song. Now I'm getting closer to 40, and I think this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard. And I've put myself in the shoes of Mary Magdalene, who is alone in the garden. Yes, there's a couple angels behind her, but as far as she's concerned, they mean nothing. She turns around and sees who she mistakes for the gardener, the one who planted the garden that was intended for humanity in the first place. So maybe it wasn't so much a mistake. And is overcome with joy to find that she's in the garden with her Lord and Savior. This song takes on a different meaning, I think, if we consider it from the perspective of Mary, if we put ourselves in her shoes, if we realize that this first evangelist had this experience with her Lord and Savior in the garden, I think it changes the song significantly. So I'm going to ask you to sing it with me. I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear falling on my ear the Son of God discloses and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joy we share as we tarry there none other has ever And the sound of his voice is so sweet, the birds hush their singing. And the melody that he gave to me within my heart is ringing. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own and the joy we share as we tarry there none other has ever known I'd stay in the garden with him 
Though the night around me be falling, but he bids me go through the voice of woe. His voice to me is calling, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me I am his own, and the joy we share as we tarry there, none other has ever known. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we want to tarry in the garden with you. We want to linger. We want to stay. We want to be close to you. And the temptation is to think that we can only do that in one place. But you have told us already in the gospel of John, as we've been reading through it together, that there will come a time where we will not worship on that mountain or that mountain, but instead, wherever we go, In spirit and truth, we will find you because you have not made yourself distant from us. You have known and called us by our names. We don't have to look and search and try to find you because you have made yourself apparent to us in your resurrection. So, Father, this morning we pray that as we, as we consider your Son, as we consider the beauty of the resurrection, of the hope for eternal life that we've been given, of the reality of a changed perspective on creation, that all the bad has been undone and continues to be undone, help us then to hear your voice that tells us to go say to others that you are risen and to carry you with us into the world. Because, Father, no matter where we go, no matter where we find ourselves, if we are proclaiming the good news of the resurrection, we are in the garden with you. We thank you so much for this wonderful and glorious day that we celebrate, not just today, but year-round, the remembrance that we have of the good news of your Son, It's in his name that we pray. Amen. If you had need of the church this morning, if you are looking for God and you want to find him, if you're searching for Jesus and you want him to call you by name, we believe he is doing that right now. He knows you. He knows what you need. He knows what you require. And we want to extend that invitation to you today. If you want to be baptized, we offer that to you today. If you need someone to pray with you, we want to pray with you today. If you need someone to sit and whisper the words of God into your ear, we want to be that voice as well. We're going to stand, we're going to sing a little bit more, and then uh, we'll conclude our service this morning. Let's stand and worship.